Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. That's it tonight. Sub-personalities, um, early Buddhist perspectives and contemporary insights into what they are, how they come about, how to work with them, and how they can cause, uh, to a degree, psychological challenges for us if we do not address when the subpersonalities that have been developed become too rigidly fixed. So, the Western concept of mind, certainly that reached its full articulation with René Descartes, was that thought was the epicenter of the mind. Thought was the, the, the driving seat, and that the mind was governed, much like the, a car is by a driver, that the mind was governed by, the, uh, by thought, by rational ideations. It's a little bit like, for a long time, we thought, uh, by we I mean, our species thought that the Earth was in the epicenter of the universe, that we didn't you know, revolve around the sun, that everything revolved around us. And that's because it seems that way. It seems that uh, the Earth is in the center of the universe because it looks to us like the sun rises and sets in the opposite uh, horizon. And so, it gives this appearance that we are of vast central importance. And likewise, because we are, while we're awake, most aware of inner chatter, the, lang the inner thought that's created by a very small region of the left frontal cortical region of the brain, broken Wernicke's region, we tend to believe that thought is what's actually driving our behaviors, is what is uh, making us move, is what's responsible. And we even believe that thought is the constituent of our identity, that which defines us. So when our thoughts become irrational at times, or when they start repeating themselves during states of anxiety, when we have intrusive ideations, when we are having uh, panic attacks and so forth, or anxiety disorders, it can feel like, oh my God, I am falling apart because I am my thoughts. And if my thoughts are no longer under my control, then something is uh, vastly going wrong. The Buddha was the first important thinker that uh, suggested what we now know to be the truth that the mind is in fact not uh, does not have a core identity does not have a fixed self that is in in any way defined by certainly not defined by thought the Buddha said if you observe closely enough what you will see in your experience are what he called aggregates, uh, five different qualities of experience, uh, 
body sensations and breath sensations, gut feelings, perceptions, which are emotional beliefs about the world, thoughts, and then there also be states of emotional consciousness and moods. And all of this, the Buddha said, um, are in flux. And so the, uh, there is nothing that we can point to and say, this is who I am fundamentally. That's his teaching of anatta, the lack of a fixed core self. Um, and the Buddha, in completely uh, by 2,000 years, foreshadowed the first Western thinker about 1,800 years later, Hume, David Hume came up with the bundle theory of self, where he essentially uh, proffered the exact same insight, which is that if we become really still and observe our internal experience, we don't see that there's anything under our control, that nothing could possibly provide a, a lasting core identity. All we see are feelings, thoughts, moods, sensations arising and passing, and that there's this unending flux. Of course, by the time the 19th century, the 1900s rolled around, the 20th century, Freud and William James showed that the mind has uh, vast uh, processes that are unconscious. For Freud, the tripartite brain, the ego, the id, the superego, only the ego was conscious. And so, uh, again, this idea of a centered uh, thought in the middle of the uh, mind, driving, creating our behaviors, responsible for who we are, was diminished. And then by the time we reach contemporary neuropsychologists from Gazaniga to Antonio Damasio to Joseph Ledoux uh, at all, we have Benjamin Lebet and uh, then Ian McGilchrist and so on and so forth. We see that the more we study the brain of uh, the region that creates thought or the ego structure of the narrative, the story that we tell about ourselves and our lives with our conscious goals is just a very, very small part. And Lebet showed even that the thinking conscious mind plays very, very, very little role in our behavior. In fact, Labette's studies showed that the only thing that consciousness does is stall us when we have an unconscious impulse to act if we have a really, really bad idea. I could go over his research, but you, or you could read about it in the book Mind Time. But essentially what he showed was that consciousness happens too late. The impulses that activate behavior come well before. Roughly, um, consciousness takes about uh, half a second to arrive after the impulse to act. And the only thing that conscious thought does is say, holy shit, <laughs> I better not do this or say this. I better think of something else. But then you wait until another unconscious impulse comes up that seems a little bit more skillful. So knowing how much of our behavior 
our actions, our moods are essentially derived from unconscious, pre-conscious, non-conscious, fundamentally, parts of the brain, the question might be asked, why does it seem that there's this ongoing me that's kind of consistent year in and year out, or at least I have a sense of who I am? Uh, and the answer Gazaniga proffered in his work is that essentially the last part of experience to arise is the left frontal cortical region of Bro uh, Broca and Wernicke's regions, that after we have all our impulses, our sensations, our feelings, it slaps words on top and it focuses our attention. And this ongoing language and focused attention creates the sense that there's a me driving the show. But actually, that me is happening well after the important processes which are happening, which are the uh, essentially activated by multiple, multiple unconscious regions of the brain from the striatal regions, basal ganglia, the right hemispheric, midbrain, so forth and so on. So the Buddha then though went on to say that we do though have certain tendencies. These tendencies he called chedasikas or essentially they're sub-personalities. They're kinds of routines of behaviors and insights and perceptions that we fall into. The Buddha suggested in these teachings on the Chaitasikas that if we are really secure having a spiritual community, supportive friends, what he called Kalyanamita, and if we had a spiritual path in our life, then from that external sense of security, our tendencies will be towards uh, generally resilient, wholesome actions. So the more we feel well-connected to supportive, empathetic individuals, we'll be caring, confident, will, uh, the word sada, will be generous, we won't be too driven by competition, we'll be heedful before we act. The more, though, we feel threatened, alone, isolated, disconnected from support, the more we will be driven towards what he called unwholesome tendencies, seeking, addictively seeking pleasure all the time to mute our feelings of stress, There'll be states of restless anxiety. There'll be states of uh, aversion towards unpleasant people or unpleasant sensations. There'll be self-doubt. There'll be uh, competitiveness. There'll be uh, a sense of overwhelm and boredom. And so miserliness and so forth. So the Buddha's... Uh, uh, essentially presentation here is that we don't have any single personality we have a bunch of different personas and depending upon how securely connected we are supported by others and by a path will dictate whether we fall more into um, resilient beneficial uh, activities that create well-being or states where we feel very small, threatened, isolated, under attack, 
where our behaviors will fall into defensive, maladaptive strategies. So let's put the Buddha on pause. Thank you very much, Buddha. We're going to put you over here for a moment, and then we're going to cut forward to today what is the dominant theory of what we call self-states or these sub-personalities. Well, I'm going to be introducing a bit of the work of Pat Ogden. She's a hero. She's the uh, the founder of sensory motor psychotherapy. She's a very important figure in attachment and um, theory. And basically, her, uh, along with Dan Siegel and um, Alan Shore, a couple of other major neuropsychologists, put forth the idea that our proto-subpersonalities start in infancy, depending upon how attentive the caregivers were around in regards to us, uh, would create different states of being or different personalities. To wit, the times in our childhood where a caregiver was attentive and emotionally uh, not only monitoring us, but empathetically mirroring our state of being, that instills a state of what's called broaden and build, where the child is creative, it's exploratory, it uh, falls into generally very positive emotional states, it is uh, willing to engage and develop new behaviors and learn, etc. And if you're if you know the nervous system, you're in your parasympathetic nervous system when you are in that state. So that's one subpersonality. When we're in, we feel really truly seen, taken care of, then we're in this resilient, growing state. The second experience is when a parent is distracted. When our parents were there, but they were unattentive or uh, when they were um, sometimes looking but easily pulled away from maintaining a sort of a positive regard. At that point, the child becomes no longer in parasympathetic. The child's nervous system switches to the sympathetic. The child becomes hypervigilant, monitoring the parent's facial expressions. The child now becomes oriented with a state of anxiety towards the parent. The child no longer is capable of being creative as much the child now will do anything to be compliant, to maintain attention and to not lose the awareness of the parent. A third possible state is when the parent is utterly either emotionally completely unavailable or the parent is physically not present. The child then becomes exceedingly self-reliant and uh, emotionally disconnected. So the child essentially blocks out of awareness subcortical sensations from the, the body. Uh, that's where you feel your feelings, your emotional states. And if you don't believe there's anybody there to mirror your emotions, to help regulate your emotions when you're a child, what you do is to survive, you shut down awareness of your body and you live up more and more in the sort of rational, I have to just take care of myself, nobody will be there for me. Very uh, sort of uh, the beginnings of uh, essentially a kind of self-sufficient at all costs. 
And then the last stage is when a parent is actually abusive or shaming, where the parent's regard is now on the child but is threatening, is actually severing any sense of warmth or mirroring. And at that point, the child becomes dissociative, drops into the very ancient um, dorsal parasympathetic state where we literally are no longer present at all, no longer aware, no longer feeling or taking in external sensations lost in this dissociative realm. So these early self-states generally happen in all all uh, you know childhoods to a degree uh, hopefully the last state minimized I can say as somebody with uh, coming on 25 years of sobriety but addict and alcoholic that uh, the greater the degree of um, we spend in either a shaming or an environment where there is not secure caregiving, the likelier it is that we will gravitate towards dissociation or to emotionally shutting down. And that's what leads to a preponderance of addictive uh, behaviors in life. So one of the most elegant theories of subpersonalities today is uh, created by a guy named Richard Schwartz who is the founder of a a kind of psychotherapy called Internal Family Systems. And uh, I'm going to use some of his ideas to introduce us to our sub-personalities as adults. Schwartz breaks down sub-personalities into uh, a bunch of different groups. The first group, the one that we're least aware of, is called exiles. And these are the sub personalities that some people refer to as the inner child. These are the sub-personalities that hold the most painful, wounding, unpleasant, frightening, experiences that felt like annihilation or like we would never recover from. And these um, experiences of rejection, shaming, uh, social (laughs) abandonment by peers, uh, loss of love, are essentially compartmentalized as much as possible. Compartmentalization means we hold them out of awareness. We try not to think about them. We do anything not to feel those experiences or reconnect with any of those, me- those memories. In childhood, the loss of attention feels like a kind of a, a death. The child is set up to be seen in the eye of the other to survive. And if that positive glance, if that connection is lost, the child feels like uh, overwhelmed, exceedingly vulnerable, and that the pain is excruciating. And that pain uh, continues because we are from cradle to grave set up to seek secure attachment. Um, Contemporary attachment theorists, not just Pat Ogden, but Margaret Crittenden, etc., show that so many of the exiled subpersonalities are formed during traumas. Traumas of physical abandonment, shame, rejection, and so forth. Uh, the second, the next group of subpersonalities we are aware of, 
and they are not compartmentalized. We are conscious that we have them. The ones that we like are called managers. These are the ones we show to other people. These are the ones that very often we develop learn early to survive our childhoods during when our parents were distracted or unavailable. We learn to manage other people to get their attention. Managers maintain a positive self-regard from other people that make us look good. Uh, I'll give you a list of some of them. Our managers can be the stoic hard worker who keeps their chin up and goes into work or shows up for life no matter how you know, frustrated or frightened or anxious we feel. The perfectionist who slaves over and um, is essentially often a workaholic who tries to, uh, uh, to look and, and perfect everything so that any form of rejection or re-experiencing of abandonment wounds will ever happen. They're the people pleaser, the person who always wants to be well-liked and affable and tries to always make people feel comfortable no matter what. The caretaker, the person who very often grew up with a alcoholic or emotionally dysregulated parent and who learned the only way they could get safe attention was by taking care of their own caregiver. And so they gravitate then in life to be in roles where they take care of others. So those are the managers. Those are the ones that we very often will determine our jobs. I actually, uh, I hear this over and over again in my counseling work. I met a woman who grew up the daughter of a, uh, of a drug addict musician. And she, to survive, she had to constantly, to make sure her father would be there and would, she had to take care of his emotional swings, his moods, his grandiosity, his narcissism. And so, of course, she grew up to be a famous agent and uh, producer who took care of nothing but narcissistic men who made movies. Um, so very often those managers are essentially adaptive strategies we developed to maintain positive attention from our caregivers. The firefighters are the second group of sub-personalities. These are the, the parts of ourselves that we don't like anybody else to see. They arise generally when we're alone and when our managers are no longer appropriate or available. Um, the addict. The person who comes home and turns on Netflix and binge watches five hours of, of shows that they don't even care about, or the shopaholic, the binge eater, and so forth, the person who comes home and just, uh, or, you know, wakes and bakes. Um, the worrier, the person who alone just agonizes about everything that could go wrong in life, um, uh, the uh, hypovigilant, the person who just literally goes into a brain fog, checks out, lies uh, around in a low energy state, overwhelmed by life. All of these are seen in IFS as subpersonalities that come out when our managers fail us as last ditch attempts to hold from our awareness, the exiles that hold our pain. The time where our exiles are most prone to be felt are when we're alone. 
because almost all of our exiles that hold our greatest wounds, our greatest painful experiences stem from times in childhood where we were alone, where we didn't feel seen, cared for, loved, and connected. So it makes sense that when we come home uh, or when we're tired, when we feel most isolated in our life is when we are most liable to have the exiles return. So it's when we're alone or isolated that we're most likely to act out on these firefighters, these addictive behaviors. Um, so, the more we, we stay in this bouncing back and forth from managers to firefighters, uh, the more a couple of things don't happen. One, the early emotional wounds uh, and traumas of childhood are not addressed. They're not healed. They're not taken into account. And over time, they become more and more dysregulated, and we have to erect even more uh, essentially drastic strategies to protect ourselves from feeling, re-experiencing these uh, memories. The other part is that uh, we fail to develop resilient parts. Those are the parts of self-care that are not about making ourselves look good to other people, nor are they addictions that are just set up to compartmentalize our pain. Those are behaviors that actually allow us to heal, to grow, to safely begin to talk about and connect with our wounds in a beneficial way. Resilient parts are things stemming from yoga, meditation, connecting with support groups, uh, creative endeavors, art, music, anything where we authentically express those, um, those feelings and uh, affect states that are not under our control that feel frightening. <laughs> so healing requires uh, what Schwartz says, integration. We have to be able to, one, have a part of our awareness that steps back and is no longer fused with our managers, because that's very often when we're in our managers, when we're being a workaholic, a perfectionist, a caregiver, a you know somebody who's competent at work. We are so fused with that that identity that we're not aware that it's just one persona, that it's not us. It doesn't define us. When I, I worked with a guy in counseling who um, would, was a manager at a, uh, a very large um, so a service industry place. And so all day long he was trying to make people feel uh, seen, taken care of, important. And then he would go home and just lie in his underwear and eat ice cream, uh, you know, because all of that energy had depleted him so much that the only way he could bounce back was by his firefighters. So he was just bouncing back and forth between the manager that looked good to other people to the firefighter that was this addictive, constantly seeking pleasure so that he wouldn't have to feel the loneliness reemerge from his childhood. The path forward is to step away, develop an awareness that is not fused with any of these parts, not 
identifying with the uh, managers, not identifying with the addicted firefighters, the parts of ourselves that just consumes as a way to numb ourselves, that doesn't even identify with the resilient parts, the part that goes to Dharma punks or goes to a 12-step meeting or goes to uh, a creative place where they, where we do something that's enlivening, but to see that, to develop this, what Schwartz calls an orchestrator, like a conductor, and the conductor decides, okay, right now, I'm going to be the workaholic because I have to get things done for my business. Okay, enough of that. Now I'm gonna have a little bit of like shopaholic just for a little while because I deserve a reward. Now I'm gonna do the the resilient part, I'm going to go to my yoga or my Pilates. I'm going to lie in savasana. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, eat some kind of uh, smoothie by the East River. <laughs> you know, I'm going to have my tempeh Reuben, and then, uh, and so to essentially heal. Another part of healing is not just orchestrating the mind, but having the capability to say, to ask each of these parts, the managers, the firefighters, and the resilient parts, to step aside and to allow us to connect with those, the, those parts, those exile parts that hold that degree of toxic shame or pain, and to be able to create a safe container to feel those feelings and process those feelings so that because the more we compartmentalize the more we essentially hold in abeyance suppress out of awareness and repress these feelings of pain the stronger our firefighters and our managers will be because those are the two parts we rely on the most to keep our pain at bay the more we connect with our exile wounds, the more then we can actually exhibit and move into resilient, self-soothing, self-caring endeavors, and the more we'll not be running from these shadow selves that hold these uh, wounding experiences. So that is the lead into the meditation where I'm going to have us connect with one, our managers, and we're going to connect with one of our managers, and we're going to, instead of trying to push the managers aside, that never works, because these parts were established as survival strategies. Early on, they are now deeply welded into us, and the idea that we can just push them aside doesn't work. So we have to connect with a manager, and we have to ask that manager that whatever manager we're in right now to step aside, to sit in a different chair so that we can then connect with a firefighter, one of our addictive behaviors, and then we treat it with respect because all of these are defensive strategies that try to protect us from feeling some older pain. We're gonna ask the firefighter to step aside and then we're gonna see if we can connect with that really buried old, some of those old, uh, parts that hold some of those feelings of abandonment or rejection. And we're just going to create a safe container to spend a little time with that inner child. <laughs> I hope that was in some way thought-provoking. 
And now just find a really comfortable seated position. So closing the eyes if they're not already closed and just allow your body to wobble from front to back, side to side, and try to, without any oversight by your thinking mind, just allow your body to come to a stop on its own. The right brain, which is far more synaptically, extensively connected to body sensations, is far more capable of creating a good balanced state in our body. And the only thing we need to do is learn how to get out of our way. When I say get out of our way, I mean um, try not to have thought governing the process. So take a little, the littlest bit of effort and lift the chin up a little bit more than you might normally just to prevent your head from slouching in front of your chest, your heart center. And that's all the effort really. And then we're going to take a series of breaths just to try to restore us to parasympathetic state where we lower the blood pressure and the, gauge the vagal break, slowing down the heart, allowing the, in the stomach to digest and creating a greater sense of ease. So take a full in-breath through the nose and squinch, tighten, clench all the muscles in the face, clenching the jaw, pinching the nose, furrowing the brow, like tightening everything around the eyes. And then as you breathe out through the mouth, very long exhalation, just allow everything in your face to release. So unclenching the jaw, unfurrowing the brow, releasing any tightness around the nose. For a second in-breath, lifting up the shoulders like you're trying to touch your ears. <clears throat> and then gently rotate the shoulders back, opening up the chest as you breathe out. Dropping both arms like you're putting down two heavy suitcases. And you're just going to allow your chest to stay in that really open position that sends signals up to your midbrain saying that I'm safe. When we feel unsafe, our body, especially the torso contracts into startle state where the shoulders clench forward. So nice open chest. And then we're going to have our third breath. Imagine that your belly is expanding while pulling in the breath. So you're pulling in all of the air through the nose into your belly and it's really round and 
bloated and then as it releases it feels like it's expelling very slowly the air from the mouth and so what we're going to try to do is continue breathing into a very soft belly feeling the expansion of the belly with the inhalation and then with the release, the softening, the exhalation. And all we're going to do is we're going to incline the mind or incline the body as well to just have very long exhalations. The longer the exhalation, the likelier will remain in parasympathetic setting of the nervous system. That's where you want to wind up. So we're going to try to move towards a state of being that we only generally attain when we're at the very beginning of a vacation or a long weekend where it feels like there's nothing to do, nowhere to go. There's no desire to think about the future or rehash. We've just reached that time in life where we can really come to a complete stop. Any cognition about anything that's not present feels, we feel disinclined to pursue. And we're just going to stay, really land in life. And the way we do that is try to get as close as we can to all the sensations of breathing in the body, as well as any sensations we might feel elsewhere in the body, the sounds surrounding us. any shifting of mood. Sometimes the mind might be open, spacious, bright. Sometimes it might feel very claustrophobic, dark. We might feel in the very back of the mind. Sometimes the tension might be really jumpy. Sometimes it might 
The mind might feel foggy, distant. Sometimes we feel tired. Whatever mood we're in, there's no right or wrong mood. We're simply observing everything that happens and we're going to try not to add a story, a view or an opinion, nor are we going to abandon our experience by going off into thought. If that happens, it's okay, because the moment you realize you've drifted away is the moment you're already on your way back to your home in this moment, in your body. So we'll just sit in silence. And just keep inclining your awareness to all the sensations that are actually happening right here and right now emptying out any feeling or sense that you should be doing something else. Just land in your life for a little while.
So at this point, I'd invite you to reflect on some tendency that we fall into when we want to look good to other people, when we're in a social setting, a work setting, or any setting where we don't always feel completely secure. If nothing comes to mind, you have no sense of what tendency, just bring to mind what you do whenever you're in any kind of awkward social environment, how or what you rely on. Sometimes we try to be very smart, courteous, funny, irreverent. What is our go-to to look good to others, to not be socially shunned. And see without overthinking it if you can give this part of ourselves a name. The know-it-all people-pleaser, the caregiver, the concerned citizen. And just see if you can ask this part of yourself without overthinking it, just ask what are you afraid of would happen if you didn't do your job? Generally, it would be some feeling that we will be unliked by those around us, seen to be not good enough. But just allow that part of ourself, if you can connect with, that manager that manages how we act around others when we want to be liked what is it what is its fear and is there any other way we could feel safe but not rely on this so much. See if anything appears. Let's 
thank this part of ourself which developed just to survive difficult, challenging social situations in our life. And now bring up something that we are secretly maybe ashamed of, some behavior that we do, especially when alone, that we wouldn't be comfortable with others knowing except for maybe those who are closest. When loneliness or boredom or overwhelm starts to arise, what behaviors do we rally towards as a way to keep difficult feelings at bay? just have a sense of this sub-personality we know that this part of ourselves is most frightened of reconnecting with our most wounded feelings of abandonment And just asking this part, would it allow us to try other ways to soothe ourselves? How else could we respond when alone we feel the reemergence of pain, disappointment? How else could we take care of ourselves in a way that we wouldn't be ashamed of? Thanking this firefighter for it too was developed during earliest periods of our life where we felt alone and it's simply trying to protect us as best it knows how. And lastly, bring to mind some really challenging hurtful experience 
that triggered maybe some of our addictive behaviors or some of our greatest experiences of overwhelm or anxiety. And just see if we can begin to connect with the part of ourself that holds the exiled experiences, the that holds all of the feelings of isolation, being unlovable. The secret sense that there's something that in us that nobody will ever receive with kindness. And just without any resistance, just feeling, being with giving this state of being just a tender awareness, not running from it. If you find any sense of tightness in the belly or hollowness in the chest or constriction around the throat, just bring your attention to these areas that so express and see if you can ask what do these parts of ourself need? What do they need most of, from us? thanking anything you've, any feeling you've connected with. And just take note that the awareness that visited with these different parts of our experience is separate, is not fused with our managers, our firefighters, our wounds, not even our resilient parts. Whenever we step back 
find this awareness, we can choose which subpersonality we bring to any situation. <laughs> 